This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com. Thank you for joining us, Bob. Uh, Can we kick it off uh, by having you tell us about your book? What's it about? Well, this book was the result of about 10 years of working on various aspects of rural America. Uh, This was, of course, well before we realized that in the 2016 election that we might become interested in rural America in a new way. I got interested because I grew up in a small town in the middle of nowhere in Kansas and was always sort of curious about the path not taken. And so I started out looking at what was happening both in rural areas and in cities in the Midwest. And then that gravitated to a larger study of people in small towns across the country, did another project on just farm families, and then began to piece together things from all of those projects. So altogether, we we realized, and when I say we, it was a project that included the help of Oh, probably a dozen or so research assistants located in different parts of the country. We realized that we had talked to about a thousand people altogether, done qualitative interviews with a huge number of people. And so at one point, the folks at Princeton University Press, who I'd been working with, came around and said, you know, we've been talking to people at conferences and everybody's kind of saying, you know, we don't really know what's going on in rural America. We haven't thought about that very much. And would it be possible to, they asked me to put together something fairly short, hopefully fairly readable that might summarize some of the main points. So that's, that's the background to the book. A thousand uh, interviews, that's almost like, if you if you just coded it, that's like a quantitative sample size. That's a <laughs> I was just thinking sample that. for qualitative. <laughs> What's great about the book, though, is uh, I enjoyed it. I'm also from a small town. The one thing that I liked is it, it dug into the deep reasoning why people in rural America are often thought to have a, a, a disaffect for the system, they would like the roots of their anger and their rage. And often the narrative is that they're country bumpkins or manipulated. Um, but I, I, I like how, how uh, you didn't have to resort to those types of stereotypes, and you did dig deeper to something that rang true. So my question is, why are uh, rural Americans uh, upset? What's the source of disaffect? Well, what I argue in the book is that rural Americans are really very loyal to their communities. Uh, Yes, they are in some ways rugged individualists that uh, appreciate their independence, um, like to do what they want to do. But they do live in small places. They either live in small communities or they live near those communities. And those communities are very much for them more 
rural communities, meaning this in the sense that we sociologists understand from Emil Durkheim, communities of obligation, communities that um, create and reinforce a kind of identity. And it's that sense of community that people living in those communities like, cherish, value, and at the same time feel is being threatened, um, threatened just by social changes. Mm -hmm. The fact that there are fewer jobs in rural communities, the fact that people in those communities are, are aging, the population is aging because younger people are, are leaving to go to college or to get jobs. The fact that in many communities, uh, about 40% of all rural communities under 25,000 people, about 40% of those have been losing population. And so there's a sense of decline. And people understand why that's happening. They try to work at things they can do to help the community. Um, but they're also angry about it. And it's partly that they're angry about losing a way of life that they value. Mm -hmm. They're also angry at various threats they perceive of facing their communities. One of those threats that came up over and over again in the interviews is the federal government. Mm -hmm. Washington is broken, mm -hmm. uh, they kept saying. And what they mean by that is that Washington, they think, should be helping. Uh, they understand that what, what happens in Washington affects them, you know, whether it's Social Security or Medicare or trade policies or agricultural policies, uh, whatever it might be. They think Washington should be helping. They also, though, think that Washington should understand them a little better than it does. They, they think, well, you know, common sense locally is, is what matters. Um, People sort of figure things out. We're pragmatic. We solve our problems here as best we can, but we don't see that happening in Washington because it's so far away and the bureaucracies are, are too big to understand, too cumbersome. So they feel that Washington is distant, but at the same time, they also then are angry because Washington is, for, for some of them, the way they think about it, is intruding on their life. It is passing unfunded mandates that they, they have to worry about, or it is favoring immigrants and they don't appreciate that, or it is favoring people in, in cities or passing regulations about the environment that they feel are restricting what they can do. Right. So a lot of their anger focuses on Washington. When you talked about like anger about trade, you know, the, my understanding, and especially you see this now with the discussion of China retaliating over aluminum and steel, is that farmers um, generally benefit from U.S. trade policy and that, you know, exports of agricultural commodities has been a big success story. Are these farmers uh, generally protectionists notwithstanding that, or are they generally in favor of trade? How do they feel about that? They're generally in favor of trade, um, have been for a long time. Um, most of the family farmers we talked to were second or third or even fourth generation farmers. They were in the business or their parents had been in the business long enough that they knew, they remembered that the worst farm crisis in recent history was in the 1970s when Jimmy Carter imposed an embargo yeah. uh, on uh, exports to Russia. And uh, they're still recovering from that. Some, some of them, if, if you look at, look at income levels, uh, foreclosures and so forth, there was a huge farm crisis at that point. And so they, they are 
totally 100% for free trade. Uh, this was true of, of smaller farmers, larger farmers, where it where it varied to some extent was the the degree to which the agricultural produce that that they're engaged with uh, is in fact mm. exportable. So, for instance, the, uh, the the small grain farmers, the the wheat, the corn, the soybeans, uh, they were totally interested in free trade. Many of the big farmers doing that that kind of business actually were members of statewide or regional trade commissions. Um, some of the larger ones actually were farming outside of the United States as well as inside. We, we talked to a f corn farmer in Iowa who had a big farm in Brazil. Uh, we talked to a cotton farmer in um, in Texas, who had done a lot of work uh, helping Saudi Arabia with its cotton farming, yeah. you know, so uh, they were they were not the country bumpkins that uh, you know sometimes get yeah. get get portrayed. So what they're thinking now about some of the you know new trade restrictions, tariffs, and and so forth. Uh, already, you know, as I've sampled a little bit, some of some of the farm journals and blogs and so forth, they're they're not very happy about it. How many of these grievances are kind of like broad culture war issues that basically people don't experience necessarily in their everyday lives, but they hear about on the news? And you know, you hear on the news that basically, you know, the government made some type of statement or enacted some type of policy that symbolically, uh, you know, lowers your status, but doesn't necessarily have a concrete. Uh, impact on your life, and you wouldn't necessarily even have heard about it if not through the news. And how much of it is like concrete policies that immediately have it? So I, what I have in mind with that later type of thing, is in the Central Valley of California, a lot of farmers are mad at the federal government because the the federal government has um, uh, has uh, created policies uh, for. They're not allowing people to take river water because it hurts the habitat of this tiny little fish. And so crops are dying all through Central Valley of California because of uh, the federal government's Endangered Species Act type stuff. So how much of it is basically, you know, stuff they hear about through the news and how much of it is like, you know, immediate policies that directly affect their lives? It's both. It really is. And if one thinks about uh, the rural population, broadly speaking, the 50 million people approximately who live in rural America, uh, I'd have to say on the basis of the interviews we did that it was more often the broad cultural issues, sometimes the symbolic issues, uh, sometimes things that were simply in the news, uh, things that Rush Limbaugh had talked about or that they'd heard about on, on Fox on Fox news, um, things that symbolically represented a challenge to uh, their way of life, to the idea that you can, uh, as a local citizen, kind of make up your mind about things, that if you, for instance, have been used to having a Christmas pageant that was in the town square, fine, do that. If you... Uh, happen to have a prayer in the, in the schools, fine, do that. Or 
even on a broader issue, if you were concerned about abortion or pornography or whatever it might be, that that was that was a that was a grievance. So that that came through over and over again. And for people like that, it didn't have very much to do with specific policies, which meant that, um, for instance, if if they happened to feel now at this moment that some particular economic policy coming out of Washington wasn't in their favor, mm-hmm. it it wouldn't matter because it, w- it was those larger symbolic issues. The exception, and Gabe, this kind of goes directly to your point about, about the Central Valley farmers, the exception usually was the farmers because their their day-to-day life is so closely tied with the federal government uh, i mean they they have to report for instance to the tenth of an acre exactly what they're planting to the county uh, farm service agency the county fsa um, they they have to of, of course as business people re- report things in in great detail so the farmers we talked to were uniformly very well informed at least about farm policies and and so it did matter to them if there was something specific either in terms of let's say general of uh, farm subsidies or crop insurance programs, or something very specific. For instance, one farmer was very upset because he had a, a tank, a, a fuel tank, and it was a fairly large tank because he was storing whatever it was, gasoline or, or diesel, and he was being required to put to to create a ditch around it, you know, in case it spilled. Well, you know, it sort of makes made sense in terms of environment, but he was a small enough farmer that it was going to cost him a lot of money to do that. And that was one of many cases we heard where the, the small to medium-sized family farmers were saying, you know, that's that's basically making it harder and harder and harder for us to stay in business. And so it's going to be the big industrial farms that come in and, and take over and, and drive us out of, out of business. So that, that was an example. One other quick example, it didn't always have to do with grievances against the federal government. Um, there was one case that, that I wrote about that kind of amused me because it, it, it was simply a grievance that the state government, the state highway department, had not put mm-hmm. up a sign out on the interstate, you know, directing yes. tourist traffic into into their town, and they and they were mad as hell about it. <laughs> so, so, Bob, so I have a question. Um, so, I, in listening to you describe what seems to be going on in rural communities, based on your many many interviews, I'm wondering how much of this. How much of this story is specific to rural communities, and how, and how much of it is 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 just a trend that we're seeing more broadly across different types of communities in the United States? Um, you know, I was struck by your description because you know I grew up in a low-income, working-class, uh, urban community in Brooklyn, and you know this sense of it being a moral community, this sense of, you know, our way of life is 
especially now seen as being under attack with, you know, extreme gentrification. Uh, the government should be doing a little bit more. The federal government should be doing a little bit more as well as our local government. Um, doing a little bit more to help in terms of housing uh, and and also in terms of uh, decriminalizing things like marijuana possession and, you know, and really just, you know, really just sort of revamping the whole criminal justice system. So how much of this is a rural story and how much of it is different segments uh, of the American population uh, feeling as though, you know what, the government isn't actually working for me and and by the government, primarily the federal government. I think that's absolutely right. I don't think this is primarily a rural story. It is, I would certainly argue, partly a rural story because there has been over the years and perhaps increasingly in the last few decades, a kind of othering of rural America. You know, the kind of stereotypes, and a lot of the people we talked to were aware of those stereotypes, you know, that people would come out from cities and they'd, they'd, they'd speak louder because they weren't sure rural people could hear them, or they'd ask, you know, questions like, you know, so do you have indoor plumbing now? You know, things, things like that. But I also think that part of what we're seeing in the current political context is a sharper an unnecessarily sharp divide in the way we talk about urban America and, and rural America, because you're absolutely right, Leslie, that lots of people in urban neighborhoods, in suburbs, uh, feel the same way about Washington being broken. They want to drain the swamp. They're concerned. They feel that the federal government isn't helping that, helping them. We know that from polls. We know that from a lot of ethnographic studies. And yet at the same, same time, the punditry has kind of jumped on this bandwagon that, well, rural America is just so different from urban America that, that somehow that's the issue. Whereas, in fact, if there, there, there are two things. If you look at the quantitative data, when you see the headlines that, well, you know, poverty is worse in, in rural America now, teen pregnancy is worse worse in rural America, drug addiction is worse in rural America, and so forth. The percentage points are often very small, and as we're taught to think as sociologists, mm -hmm. the, the within variation is often greater than the between variation when you think about those categories. And, and, and I certainly noticed, wrote about you know, the huge variations that, that there are uh, across regions, um, even between people who live in a town of 5,000 people and people who who live in a town of 20,000 people, people who live in a predominantly African-American community or a predominantly Hispanic community or, or a white Caucasian community, all of those differences, and those often get blurred. So that's, that's an important part of the story, too. One interesting thing that came through in your book is I often compare the American communities you profile with the Canadian community that I'm from, and there are some stark differences. Uh, for example, uh, there's an attitude, at least in my home community, which is reliably NDP, which is like socialist, that uh, you can't get a nice airport or you can't get a nice bus station or infrastructure investment without the government's help. Like where there's a sense that there, we rely on transfers from Toronto, let's say. And so the attitude is very positive to redistribution. Uh, and I think uh, there's uh, people look towards the government to help them. 
why is it different? Is it that, uh, that like my, or let me, let me rephrase uh, my question. My sense is that one of the big differences, or there are two big differences. One is religion is less strong, uh, at least in the part of Canada that I'm from, and that uh, people aren't fed a steady stream of media that, that is uh, sort of inciting people to be angry at others, immigrants or the city or things like that. And I feel like that, that's a steady diet. How much of that, uh, need, you know, sort of incitement or, and uh, religion, do you think, uh, uh, help explain why rural Americans uh, have the attitudes they do? Absolutely crucial. Uh, I, I understand, too, I, I have... I have relatives in uh, in Canada, and we we go back and forth on precisely this. You know, why is uh, Canada so civilized <laughs> about so many things, and and the and the U.S. is not? I I do think it's absolutely true that both the media and and religion make a difference. Uh, one of the things I tried to pick up in the interviews and and also in traveling around and spending time in small towns was you know just just what is in the background who are people quoting or if if you're sitting having an interview at, at uh, McDonald's is the television on and yes the polarized media uh, really does make a difference and you know frankly now as we're hearing news about uh, Sinclair Broadcasting, you know, taking over so many, uh, you know, local TV stations and so forth, that that's concerning. Media is part of it. Religion is too. What happens with religion is is that, and we talk to a lot of of pastors and, and priests. What happens is that the, the the megaphone that religion has in small communities is often quite loud, partly because. Uh, church attendance is actually a little bit higher in rural communities, by and large, than in urban communities, but partly because the churches, uh, and it usually is churches, of course, there there's the occasional mosque, the occasional synagogue, but the churches are well integrated with the rest of the community. Um, People who are leaders in the church, whether it's whether it's the clergy or, or lay leaders, are also involved with the school board and the Kiwanis Club and the Chamber of Commerce and whatever it might be. Also, the pastors are uh, usually among the more articulate folks in the community. They they have a built-in audience, and and some of those pastors uh, for a long time have been involved in the in the pro-life movement, um, more recently in the Tea Party movement, um, maybe especially in states that have been red states for a long time, Republican states. Um, they have also been involved in, in local politics, or at least they're very closely uh, uh, related to, sometimes literally related to uh, people who are in politics. So, uh, so yes, the churches do make quite a big difference. And, and a lot of times uh, it is an interesting alliance between conservative Catholics and conservative Protestants, and that's that's been one of the results of the pro-life movement over the last 30 years or so, that it's formed that alliance that didn't used to be there between Protestants and Catholics. Yeah, I wanted to circle back to, um, to a comment that you made earlier, Bob, when you were talking about the within... Uh, the within group variation and i'm wondering you know how much how, how much of your argument is focusing primarily on 
on on ma majority majority white rural areas um and um and would your story be different if you if you were you know just talking to um predominantly black rural communities because they those do exist or communities that are heavily latino or rural communities that are heavily asian uh do you think do you think your findings would be different yes and i know that because we we did do interviews in predominantly african-american communities and and predominantly hispanic communities and what you find is that even in let's say talking to people in the same community who are of different races or eth ethnic groups is that the story is is indeed quite different this this isn't surprising but it, it is different one example and there's one one of the communities that I profile in the book is is a southern community. It, it, it's a Gulf community. I, I don't give the the actual name of it, but uh, it is a, a very um, a mixed race community. You talk to the to the white people there. It's a story in their view of of them basically promoting racial progress, and their evidence of that is well. You know, it didn't used to be that there were right. any African Americans on the town council and now there is one or you know it didn't it, it, it didn't used to be that uh, the schools were integrated at all and, and now they sort of are um, you know so they're kind of you know giving that spin on it and that certainly wasn't what the african-american people told us they 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 told us you know much more about the continuing prejudice and the uphill battle for jobs and representation and of course they they usually were not in power although we did talk to african american mayors and and uh, town managers and and clergy but because of the power dynamics that that we've all known about for years and years that are still there in small communities they were having to look much more to the outside and to state or usually federal government help to rectify some of those uh, you know local forms of discrimination with with Hispanic communities it, it was interesting uh, we we did interview people in in some communities in in Texas and in California that had been predominantly Hispanic for a long time but the more interesting to me at least were some of the communities that had become minority majority in recent years and those uh, were in the south and in the Midwest. And in those communities, the interesting dynamic mostly had to do with the pace of change. So communities that had, over a very short period of time, become minority-majority, uh, usually because of a, a sudden uh, opening of a, of a food processing plant, you know, a poultry processing plant or, or a beef plant or some such thing. Those communities had, had really struggled. Uh, the Hispanics and the Anglos, uh, you know, just had, both had a lot of difficulties. And there, and there had been a huge amount of white Anglo flight uh, in those communities. The ones, and I, I actually do talk about one by name, Garden City, Kansas, that's been 
studied several times by, by several teams of sociologists. That, that was an, an interesting case because they had made the transition over a long period of time. The, the largest meat processing plant in the world moved there in 1980s, so, so they've had a, quite a while since then. But even before that, there had been a sugar processing plant for most of the 20th century, and even before that, the railroad came, came through, and some of the Hispanics and African Americans who had worked on the railroad stayed. There had been an NAACP chapter for years and years and years. And despite the fact that they've had some of the stereotypic difficulties, you know, concerns about crimes, concerns about uh, language education in the schools, new immigration, undocumented uh, uh, workers, and so forth. That community's actually made the transition pretty well. Um, but to the to the main point, Leslie, absolutely, it makes it makes a huge difference, and it is true that. Uh, the rural population is is more uh, white Anglo, somewhere between 85 and 90% than urban America, uh, but there is a lot of diversity as well. Yeah, and, and the other thing is, is you know, I've, I, and I've often, I've often thought about this, and, and actually, um, I mean, I've, I've actually read other people <laughs> write about this, um, but I was wondering what you'd have to say to our listeners um, about this point. Sorry for my roundabout way of asking the question. But for a really long time, farmers were incredibly integral to you know, sort of the life and the health, you know, of this country as well as its economy. And, you know, that's not to say that they aren't anymore. It's just, as you mentioned earlier, you know, there are these huge agribusinesses now that have have come in to take over that role. And, and I'm wondering how much of this disaffection, this feeling of disaffection has to do with all of a sudden, not even all of a sudden, but gradually, um, uh, you know, people starting to realize that the rest of the country doesn't, doesn't look at them in this way anymore. We heard that a lot. Yeah, yeah. Farmers would would tell us, and and sometimes people in small towns who weren't farmers but who understood the local economy was agricultural would would tell us what, that. Yeah, people need to understand, you know, that their food comes from us. Uh, one of the one of the quotes was, you know, well, they may not be thinking about us as farmers, but they ought to, because at least three times a day, you know, they're benefiting from what we produce. And they they felt that way, um, even if they were very small farmers and were, let's say, producing wheat or maybe soybeans or, let's say, corn that was mostly going to ethanol rather than to food, but they, they still thought of themselves as being integral to everybody's lives and to the economic life of the society. What bothered them, of course, was that agriculture has become such a matter of agribusiness. They knew they were dependent on it. They hated it. Um, but there was really no escape from it. So I mean, one example is, is genetic engineered uh, seed. Um, wheat 
Um, they said, fortunately, still it, it's illegal to, to use GMO wheat, but corn and soybeans are all GMO. And so Monsanto you know, makes billions of dollars, millions at least, hundreds of millions uh, off of that because every year you have to buy new seed that is prepared you know, genetically for the latest version of Roundup, which you then also pay for, you know. And, and so farming, for many of the people we talk to, has on the one hand basically become a matter of chemicals. It's, it's almost as if the soil doesn't matter anymore. It's, it's chemicals, it's fertilizer and pesticides that, that matter. And on the other side of hugely expensive equipment, uh, you know, where a, or a combine that you use to thrash wheat or corn cost $500,000, and a decent tractor costs a quarter of a million dollars, and so you have to be working on pretty large scale for that to happen. Um, that actually it did have one relationship to immigration, as it, as it turns out, because immigrant labor, of course, has been very important in agriculture. It still is in the fruit and vegetable industry, of course, and in, in the dairy industry. The farmers, though, who were producing small grain crops with this very expensive equipment were basically saying, you know, even though it's expensive, we feel like that's the route we have to go rather, rather than hiring immigrant labor. And if we've paid a half million dollars for a combine, we're probably going to run it ourselves just, just to be careful about it rather than hire somebody to do it. So that, that also meant that these farmers were really deeply involved in the digital revolution it, it was chemicals on the one hand, but it was also the digital revolution. And people ask me, well, what was one of the things that surprised me? And I've, I've kept up on farming enough just as a personal interest coming from that background myself that it didn't totally surprise me. But I was still impressed you know, that we were, we were doing interviews with farmers on their cell phone while they were driving their tractor or their combine in the field and they weren't driving it the gps wow. system was driving it you, you know with a with a 2 inch margin through the field and the onboard computer was measuring the soil quality every 100 feet or so and doling out the fertilizer or the chemicals according to the the soil tests mm. that, that were coming in. And the other onboard computer was the one that the farmer was using to check in with the futures market you know, and talk to their brokers. I mean, it was just, you know, totally. And, and this was, a, of course, huge equipment as as well, I mean, it, it used to be, let's say, if you were spraying pesticide in a field, you, you might have a machine that was at most 20 feet wide, 12 feet more likely. They, they had booms that were 96 feet in width, and they had radar systems, you know, on the ends of those booms to, to make sure that they stayed a certain distance from the soil. It, it, was, it was just amazing, the technology that is going on in rural America. Do you, do you think there's any chance that people from communities are going to uh, buy into the multiculturalism project, or is there just no way you think they would be open to to multiculturalism, or for example, the Democratic Party, or uh, you know, uh, redistributive programs. Are, are, are these people winnable to these types of propositions, or do you think there's no chance? 
I'd have to, I, if you pushed me, I'd have to say no chance or very little chance, um, because on the on the political spectrum, a lot of these communities have been Republican for as long as anybody can remember, except in the South, where of course historically they were Democratic, but ever since the Reagan Revolution, they've been Republican. And while it's true that occasionally a Democrat wins. For instance, I, one of the books I did was on, on Kansas, and Kansas has been Republican ever since the Civil War. Um, but Kathleen Sebelius was governor as a Democrat, and, and uh, earlier in the 70s there have been two other Democrats that, that were governors. So it's possible. There's, there's, a little, uh, there's a little swatch of purple at least in in all of these uh, communities. But the the more likely kind of political adaptation, I think, in a lot of these communities is going to be still within the Republican Party where the real action is in the primaries, in the primaries, not in the general election. And you've already begun to, to, to see this, this year, and, and it's been true over the last six or eight years, a, a little bit of that jockeying going on in the primaries between conservative Republicans and moderate Republicans or Tea Party challengers and incumbent Republicans. And there, there, there is actually a kind of a centrist, moderate Republican in a lot of these, uh, in a lot of these uh, districts um, that, um, that is willing to work across the aisle, uh, willing to think about re uh, uh, redistribution, even to some extent sometimes thinking about uh, redistricting, um, but at least being concerned about um, public education, being concerned about tax policies. Um, and I think that's probably the more likely change that that we would see. It doesn't mean that Democrats shouldn't run candidates in in some of these districts because there there are surprises right. that, that that do happen. Um, but I do think it's it's more likely to happen in the Republican primaries. I, I do have uh, one more question about the book, and it has to do with uh, place and, and sort of the draw of place. I remember growing up, there's always uh, a question of are you going to leave or are you going to stay and if you're going to be college educated chances are there'll be little to no jobs that you could come back to even if you wanted to come back uh, but but some people do choose to stay and and what's the draw why why would people stay in distressed areas areas that to you know, seem uh, filled with disaffect, filled with rage. Why, why stay? Why not just pack it up and go to the city? There's a bunch of reasons. Uh, one is that the family farm is there, and that's what they want to do. Uh, second, sometimes, is that the family business is, is, is there, so same thing. A third is that they may have aging relatives who need their care, and, and they feel obligated to help. A fourth, though, is that they like the small town ambience. They like feeling like they know everybody in town. Um, there is the kind of small frog pond phenomenon that you know maybe they were the star football player or the editor of the 
high school newspaper or, or whatever, and so they're known in the in the community, and and maybe they do indeed have an extended family there. So they stay. We also talked to a fair number of people who had intentionally left the city and moved to a, a small town. They they wanted open space. They wanted to maybe escape crime if if, if that was a concern. <clears throat> Maybe they had a, a grandparents who had lived in a small town, and so there was a kind of nostalgia, you know, getting back in terms of back to their roots. Uh, in some cases, it, it was that they wanted to get involved themselves in sustainable agriculture, you know, grow, grow a garden, uh, right. raise goats, sheep, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so, yeah, there were, yeah, I mean, it's, it's surprising, especially when, when the trend mm -hmm. certainly is a brain drain uh, for people who've gone to college and, and, and have to move elsewhere to get jobs. But there, uh, there, there are some reasons why people stay. I also get the sense that uh, where you grow up is a, a, a deep part of your identity. And that, that, that's not really a small town thing. I can say new, kids in New York are very, very tied to this city. And it's just as hard to get them to leave town, uh, even if uh, there are opportunities that present themselves. And, and, and on, uh, on the topic of leaving, how much of it for the brain drain do you think is uh, a question of finding a spouse? That was always a very big issue among the college educated of my town. You know, you could go home, but uh, it might be hard to meet somebody. It might be hard to find someone to start a family with. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the marriage markets are pretty small <laughs> yeah. in, in, in small towns. Yeah, they, they really are. And, and so, yes, uh, you know, because of the life stage and, and everything else, when you go away to college, you're more likely to meet somebody there and then you move on. Um, this, do, this did turn out to be, we found, a, a real gender-based issue for men and women in, in small towns, for, for the women, that is, because small towns are patrilocal. They, they really are, because it was the, the family farm or the family business or whatever it was. And so it's, it's the male spouse, in most cases, who's local, and the female spouse who's not local. Maybe she maybe she grew up in a small town, but it wasn't that town. Right. And maybe she, maybe she grew up in a city even. And that's that's been a real stretch for a lot of those women because. They are newcomers, even if they've lived there for 15 years, and they're having to deal with in-laws and you know people that they maybe don't feel they get along with terribly well. And then, especially for the women who gave up careers, you know, they they were college educated, they had a career, they lived in a city, and now they were living out in the middle of the nowhere, middle of nowhere. It, it was really tough for them, and they admitted it. So tell us, what are you working on next? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't worked. I, I I haven't worked specifically on a project on religion for a while. Although religion has been a piece of these various rural and small town projects, and so I've been 
trying to get back into that literature. I've been working on what might become a book, trying to think through the implications of practice theory, kind of so-called practice turn in sociological theory, and what that might imply in, in terms of understanding religion a little bit better. So that that's one possible project. Another possible project is thinking about the ways in which religious people, maybe especially conservatively religious people, have thought about the the government, the federal government, in other ways over, say, roughly since the beginning of the 20th century. And the question being, why have so many religious people been so oriented towards small government mm. as being better than, you know, larger government programs? Um, this this was a, an issue that came up a lot in in project I did several years ago on Texas, where we were talking to clergy in Texas, and they'd say, "Well, you know, I'm I'm all in favor of helping the poor, and I'm not a I'm, I'm not a racist." Yeah. Saying so many words, you know, I I I, I want to be uh, interracial. I I, I want to you know get along with people different from myself, and so on and so forth. And yet, they didn't connect the dots between their own kind of small government orientations and the fact that in order to engage in the in the humanitarian issues the relief issues the social justice issues that they were concerned with that they needed to think about government programs that that could help and i've been puzzled about that uh I know that from some of the history work I've done that it it, it was there during the New Deal. Um, it was certainly there during the Cold War. And I'm just curious, you know, when you think about somebody like Paul Ryan, uh, you know, who claims you you read some of his material, he he speaks at church groups. He claims to be a a, a, a very devout Christian person, and yet you know every kind of government program that you'd think would help those issues he's against and so so why is that so that that that's something that puzzles me and uh i i, I might try working on it yeah uh for those who'd like to have a 10 book career uh how would you uh, what what advice would you give to uh young sociologists in all seriousness to uh you know to maintain the the the, the type of production that you've maintained do you have any tips for 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 us Oh, but before he does that, I, I should just tell, I remember <clears throat> Marvin Bresler would say that uh, when Bob first came to Princeton from uh, Berkeley, uh -huh. that four days a week, you would just walk past his office in the hallway and you'd hear typing, typing, <laughs> typing. And then one day a week, you wouldn't hear typing. And that was the day Bob was meeting with his publisher. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a totally apocryphal story. I don't think I ever met with a publisher. <laughs> but, but, but. Well, I, I, I can't imagine Marvin Bresler exaggerating. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, there, there, is, there is one piece of, of truth that, as, as we all know, you know, whether we're working on our first book or our first article or, or 
or, or beyond that is is that time spent sitting in the chair in front of a computer you know has a very strong correlation with with the <laughs> amount of out, out, output and, uh, no question about that uh, but I suppose the other the other thing in terms of, of keeping it going it, which also isn't too surprising, but I've certainly found it true, and that is kind of thinking thinking ahead. You know, like five years or or whatever. Um, I can't think of a single project I've worked on that that, that took less than five years, uh, mm. and and some of them much longer than than that. It wasn't always the front burner project, but just you know that time to. To kind of mull over ideas and say, "Oh, that seems like a good idea." No, no, that's stupid. You know, move on. Eh, need to reformulate that. You come back to it. Oh, yeah. Well, that kind of makes sense. You read something. You you talk to somebody. You start doing a little bit of data collection. Something works. Something doesn't work. And you know, then maybe five years later, you oh, okay, yeah, it's time to sit down and actually turn that into a book. Um, and I, I, I think that's probably pretty much what everybody does. Um, but I, I, I think it works that way when you do that. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. For more information, visit theannexpodcast.com. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our production team included Anika Chowdhury, and Lisseth Moreno. On behalf of the Annex team, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.